What is up, young and profiters? Today, we're dusting off my interview with Josh Peck. Josh is one of the most recognizable faces of the millennial generation. He's most well-known for starring in hit Nickelodeon shows like Drake and Josh and The Amanda Show. Since then, Josh has worked on several hit TV shows and movies, including Red Dawn, The Wackness, the Disney Plus original series Turner and Hooch, How I Met Your Father, and the iCarly reboot on Paramount+. Plus. He also is a podcaster and the author of the memoir, Happy People Are Annoying. In this episode, Josh and I have an honest conversation about the relationship between humor and insecurity, his early interest in performing in comedy, and his inspiring come-up story from Nickelodeon to the silver screen. We also dive into the harsh reality that comes with being an actor and being in the spotlight, and how he overcame his issues with body image and drug addiction. This is a great episode for anyone who has struggled with mental health issues, body image issues, or addiction. I personally grew up watching Drake and Josh, so I was very excited for this interview for that reason. But then Josh blew me away with his insights on happiness and mental health. Without further ado, enjoy my interview with Josh Peck. Hey, Josh, welcome to Young and Profiting Podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I am super hyped. For those who don't know and who might be living under a rock, you are a young comedian and actor. You actually started on Nickelodeon shows like The Amanda Show and The Drake and Josh Show, which pretty much defined the TV conception of most millennial childhoods, especially those younger millennials. And in fact, I have a lot of 25-year-old-ish girls that work for me, and they were freaking out that you were coming on the show more than Matthew McConaughey being on the show. That just goes to show that you are truly an icon of our generation. Well, it's a great honor. And you really, if you really sit down and think about it, McConaughey's fine, good actor, (laughs) but is he offering up what Peck's offering? I'm not so sure. Yeah, and since your Nickelodeon days, you've become a huge social media influencer with over 20 million followers across Instagram, YouTube, and TikTok. And on top of everything, you're now an author with your new memoir, Happy People Are Annoying. So let's start there. What's up with the title of your book? Why are happy people so annoying? Well, my book agent told me that'd be a good title, and I realized I should go with the people whose business it is to sell books. I'm only half joking. I I wrote a 30-page proposal for this book, and I had no title. And initially, I sort of was working with titles like The Millennial Guide to Survival or Everything I Wish Someone Had Told Me. And I didn't love any of those. But as you know, like there's nothing easy about titling anything, your podcast, your book, your kid. And so (laughs) once my agent read the proposal, she sort of pitched this idea in a weird way, the book sort of grew into the title, which was like this idea that I'd gone throughout my whole life, assuming that like happiness or what I thought it was, was reserved for people who were generationally wealthy, attractive, the quarterback. And I just thought that I didn't receive the same sort of manual for living that everyone else had been given at birth. And my journey facing challenge and trial and walking through it has helped me to sort of define what happiness is for me. Yeah, I love that. And I have to say, your memoir was super easy to read. It was inspiring. It was funny. It was relatable, even though I'm not an actress and never did acting before. But I related to a lot of things that you said. And I feel like a lot of people who read your book did as well. And I think my audience is going to really resonate with your story. So let's start up with your childhood. 
you grew up in Hell's Kitchen. You had a single mom. You never met your father and you were up and down financially as a child. And at eight years old, you actually started developing your love for comedy and ended up doing stand-up. So let's start there. How did you first get into performing? I think just having a, a mother who was sort of like this unrealized performer, like her great love mm. has been musicals and singing and just kind of stand-up comedy. She's just a natural entertainer. And she used that superpower to be a great business person. And yeah, we certainly struggled financially, which I don't think is a new experience for anyone with a single parent, especially a woman in the 80s, like having to deal with all like sort of like that toxic masculine workforce mm. and what she was sort of, those waters she was navigating, I would imagine required her to sort of arm herself with those tools of like, when I walk into a room, I'm going to crush it with a joke immediately. And then you're going to know who has the power here. So I knew immediately, like, there's a currency to like having the ability in which to take over a room and comedy can be that superpower. And even at eight or nine, it doesn't matter. You're immediately upgraded to the adult table as soon as you prove that you're funny. Mm, that's super, super interesting. So how did you kind of hone your chops? Like, how did you practice and start to learn initially? I think I was just obsessed with television and sitcoms and talked about my best friends growing up were Billy Madison and Ace Ventura and the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. Like, I didn't know that I was sort of putting in my 10,000 hours. I just saw, thought that I was obsessed with TV like all my other friends were. But in a weird way, I was like absorbing the rhythms. And comedy is very for the most part, subjective, but there is a justice to comedy and that if it doesn't get a joke, it's really hard to interpret that it worked. So I like the idea of being like, there's no debating this. If I get a laugh and laughter kind of like crying is involuntary, like there's no interpreting that. I got it. And I get the pat on the back for that one. Mm, it was like that instant gratification, right? Oh yeah. You chase it. Yeah. And so it seems like your mom was really supportive throughout your journey, but actually people like your grandparents really thought that there was no lifelong career trajectory as an actor, and they thought it wasn't really a stable profession. So how did you kind of move through that, even though there were some naysayers in your life? Well, I, I think just inherently there were people in my life, like family members. I mean, people had no problem, especially then in the 90s, like giving their opinion about how ridiculous it is that mm -hmm. the idea of having a, a full realized life in this crazy profession and, and their pragmatism or their nervousness isn't without reason. I, even now, in today's day, I would say, Look, if my son told me that he wanted to be an actor when he was 18 or 19, I would certainly be like, are you sure you don't want to be a dentist? How about teeth? Maybe you should try teeth <laughs> because it's a crazy business. It's a big swing, even though I, I feel like many of us feel like we know some actor in our life or some performer or some influencer nowadays. It still is the, the lesser taken path. And because of that, it affords you some really big wins and possibilities for greatness and also a lot of uncertainty. So it was understandable. But I went to performing arts high school when I was 12 years old. And I remember I was suddenly surrounded by people. I mean, my school had alumni like Claire Danes and Jesse Eisenberg and Alicia Keys, but even maybe not as big as they were. 
just like working kid actors who are on Broadway shows or TV shows. And I was like, well, they're making grown up money. Mm. So suddenly it seemed possible because I was, you know, making 20 bucks a weekend performing at Caroline, certainly not enough to pay your rent. But I was like, wow, these kids are doing the thing that I love and they're making a grown up salary. Like maybe this is possible. Yeah. And so you believed in yourself enough where at one point in your memoir, you talk about meeting the president of Nickelodeon for the first time and you were in love with the show All That, which is like the kids version of Saturday Night Live, for those who don't know. And you mustered up the courage to actually tell him that you wanted to be on the show. So I'd love for you to share that story and some of the lessons that you learned. Well, I would audition for Nickelodeon a lot as a kid, and the Viacom headquarters was in a building called 1515 Broadway, which I imagine is still there, and it sort of had all their subsidiaries housed in this gigantic building that if you watch MTV now or have for the last 25 years, whenever they're doing like, I mean, back in my day, there was a show called TRL, but like whenever you see them sort of overlooking Times Square, that is 1515 Broadway. So I would audition at Nickelodeon all the time. And I would basically tell them like, listen, I'm young, I'm funny, and I'm chubby. Like, you need me. Trust me. Like, I have the secret sauce. And they were like, well, maybe we need you, but we'll see. And slowly but surely, I would do a commercial or do a TV show for them. And then I booked this movie called Snow Day, which was my first movie. My mom and I fly to Canada, first time out of the country. And one day I'm just like chatting with some guy who had a great laugh and I'm giving him some of my material from stand-up. And my mom sort of saddles over to me and is like, do you know who that is? It's the president of Nickelodeon. And she said, you should tell him you want to be on all that. Because until that point, I could not get a call back for all that. I would audition, I would pray, I would try to suck up to the casting (laughs) director, but I was just not what they were looking for. And so I tell him that. And nine months later, I got a call from him saying, congratulations, I'm going to move your mom and you out to California, and you're going to be on The Amanda Show. And I don't know what that lesson is other than shoot your shot. Yeah, (laughs) it is shoot your shot. And don't be afraid of asking for what you want. I mean, you had the courage to ask for what you want. And it didn't turn out exactly how you wanted, but it was a huge step in your career that I think really changed your life. So Drake and Josh was really like your mega hit that I think everybody knows you from. I'd love to hear about how that turned into you leading the show with Drake and also the best and worst parts of you being on that show. Well, we were both in the Amanda show together. And initially I was sort of iced by the producers of that show because I think they were sort of strongly encouraged to put me on the show by that president. I'm not sure that idea was theirs. So initially, I just kind of sat around watching people like Amanda Bynes, who was so much more talented than I was, and seeing like what her secret sauce was and trying to learn from her instead of resenting the fact that I was kind of sitting on the bench. And over time, I figured like, well, eventually, like they're paying me and I'm here. So I imagine they'll give me a shot. And they did. And it worked out in my favor. And so when they, when Nickelodeon needed a new buddy comedy, Drake and I were just a really good option. And that's what sort of led to Drake and Josh. And I think the best part of that show in hindsight is the fact that, you know, 20 years later, people still talk about it, that it still means so much to families and that they, they let us into our homes, which is a very like privileged opportunity, even more so than like, you know, everyone wants to be in the gigantic Marvel movie or like the big, huge blockbuster. But 
there's something special about having a show that like the whole family can sit around and like watch in their living room. It's very intimate. And I think that's what the show has been for a lot of people and even generations now, which is really special. And I think the hardest part of the show was just I was sort of introducing myself to the world in a body that I wasn't quite comfortable in because I was pretty overweight. And I think navigating those waters of being a public person, getting to do something that I dreamt of doing, while also feeling like just massively insecure, was were, they were challenging waters to navigate. Yeah. So I want to stick on this for a point because I think this is a really important piece of your story. So my team always gives me quotes and stuff in my research. And there was a couple that really stood out. And they were, the reason why people are funny is usually not funny. And you have another quote, real artists take the misery and sadness out of life and translate that into art. So is there some real reason why you were funny as a kid? Like, was it more like masking this insecurity that you had? I'd love for you to share more about that. Certainly. I mean, when I meet like really attractive people now that try to go joke for joke with me, I always want to say to them, like, listen, there's a chance I'm funnier than you, but trust me, I'd trade it for a second for your face. Like, (laughs) I would have traded it all, but certainly, because why not? I mean, listen, I live a pretty like normal life, all things considered, but being a public person, like, I'm not going to delude myself. Like I do get a little bit of special treatment here and there. Like maybe it's easier to get a reservation at a restaurant. I mean, I'm not that fancy or like, I'll be like at a coffee shop and people be like, Oh, it's on me. And I'll be like, don't give me the free coffee. Like I, this I can afford. And so I have to like remind myself of like, Oh, like most people don't get this Josh. Like, so have an understanding of like your privilege. Attractive people get that all the time. Like a lot of people grow up that way, right? Where they're just like, oh, people are so friendly. I'm like, yeah, to you. And so I just think that the need in which to create this defense mechanism to sort of navigate your way through the world isn't necessary for certain people. But for a guy like me, it certainly was. Yeah. And there's a legacy of the big funny guy. So it, it made sense. Maybe if I grew up in a really athletic community, being the big guy, it would have made sense to try to go be an offensive lineman for my high school football team. But in New York, growing up with the mom I had, it was to be funny and entertaining. Hmm. I love that. It's like you use that as a way to kind of shine and be likable, even though you felt like on the outside, you weren't just being liked for your looks. You got to be liked for your personality, basically. I think so. And I think there was a need to I felt like I walked into situations at a disadvantage, that people made a snap judgment about me being that weight of like, oh, you're, you lack willpower or you're slovenly or something. And I didn't want to be that great. I just wanted to be at an even sort of at the same level as everyone else. Let's hold that thought and take a quick break with our sponsors. Young and profiters, they may call me the podcast princess, but I'm also the LinkedIn queen. I've been a LinkedIn influencer for six years now, and I teach one of the most popular courses about LinkedIn. And I love to teach sales on LinkedIn because when it comes to B2B sales, LinkedIn has got that on lock. LinkedIn is where all the decision makers are hanging out. There are 180 million senior level decision makers on LinkedIn and 10 million C-suite decision makers. These people are on LinkedIn and they're in the mode to buy. They're using LinkedIn for their buying journey to research vendors or sales reps that they might work with to look up how to solve their problems 
to learn from industry thought leaders. They are in the mode to buy, whereas on other platforms, they're in the mode to be entertained. You want to get them in the right mindset. You want to cut through the noise with LinkedIn ads. In fact, 79% of B2B marketers rate LinkedIn as their top channel for paid media. And LinkedIn has the best targeting because they've got all these different inputs. People are putting their resume basically up on there. And so there's so many keywords that they can use to target the right decision makers so they can hear about how you solve their problems. And I've got a special gift for all you young and profiters who want to try LinkedIn ads. You can get $100 credit. LinkedIn was super generous. If you want to make B2B marketing everything it can be and get $100 credit on your next campaign, go to linkedin.com slash yap, Y-A-P. Again, if you want to claim your credit, go to linkedin.com slash yap. Terms and conditions apply. Young and profiters, are you dreaming about starting a course? Do you want to go from one-to-one to one-to-many and scale yourself? If you're thinking about starting a course, then you need to hear about Kajabi. Kajabi is the OG of course platforms. I've got creators in my network like Jenna Kutcher and Amy Porterfield who have been using Kajabi for over a decade. These ladies know what they're doing. They are literally the course queens. And so I took a page from their playbook and I started using Kajabi. I've been playing around with it because I'm launching a podcast course next month and I need a lot of features that only a course platform would have like Kajabi. And they've thought of it all. No matter your niche, Kajabi makes it easy to turn your skills, passions, and experiences into enriching online courses, exclusive membership sites, subscription podcasts, thriving communities, personalized coaching, and so much more. One of the smartest things that I did when I launched my course is I focused on the content. I lasered in on that. I made sure people were getting the best investment they could, that I wouldn't get any refunds, that people would tell their friends, and my course would be successful by word of mouth. And I did that by focusing on my content, what I was good at, and not all the tech. Leave the tech stuff for your course to Kajabi. They are experts in that area, and they've thought of everything that you would ever need for your course. So if you want to start your course, now is your chance. As you guys may know, I always ask my sponsors for a free trial for any software that we talk about on the show. And Kajabi was super generous. They gave us a free 30-day trial that you can get at kajabi.com slash profiting. Right now, Kajabi is offering a free 30-day trial to start your business if you go to kajabi.com slash profiting. That's K-A-J-A-B-I dot com slash profiting. Go to kajabi.com slash profiting and join the creators and entrepreneurs who have made over $7 billion. So something that I found very, very interesting, growing up watching Drake and Josh, everybody thinks that you're super rich and that you made it for life off that show. But it turns out you were only paid like 100 grand a year for like five years or something on that show. And it really was tough after it ended to continue to monetize that fame because there was no social media. Hollywood in the 2000s is very different from Hollywood now. So I'd love for you to kind of share some more on that and give us some color about that situation. It's gross to talk about money, but the reason I felt compelled to do it was that I believe there was this misconception of like what a guy like me coming from that show, where we should be at in life the moment it's over fiscally, and just how much runway you you actually have. I remember this woman after she read the book or saw some excerpt from an interview was like, I work with kids and I make 50 grand a year. Like, who are you to say this? And I was like, 
ma'am, first of all, <laughs> no one is debating you that you should be making way more money and what you do is way more important than what I was doing. I just think the difference is, is that no one thinks you're making a million a year, but a lot of people thought I was. And so I think the reality is when you finish a show like that, if you're making a, a middle-class income, you only have a year or so runway if you've been smart with your money before it's important to find another job, especially if you're sort of helping support the family the way that I was at that age, which was my honor because my mom sort of gave up so much of her life to come help me. It was challenging. And I think naturally we see kids like that. And if they do have to do a job to pay the bills, which maybe isn't necessarily some Oscar award winning part, but it's just something that's sort of Again, for a paycheck, we instantly judge them and think like, what'd you do? Blow all your money? Like, what are you just some some cliche who, you know, had a Bentley or something? When in reality, they're just there wasn't as much as people thought. Yeah. So what happened after you ended Drake and Josh? How did you pivot, considering that your television career was over? Certainly. I mean, I don't know. I mean, my television career wasn't over, right? The show was over. So I think that's not the best way to phrase it, because it's like your career isn't over as an actor until you stop acting. So it's just what's next. So that's really what it was. What was next? So I wound up starring in this movie called The Wackness with my favorite actor, Sir Ben Kingsley and Method Man and Mary Kate Olsen. And we wound up winning Sundance. And it was like this indie movie that I dreamt of doing because, you know, at 21, what I really wanted my whole life was just to be an actor. I didn't want to be a movie star and I didn't want to be I certainly didn't want to be a, a child star and I didn't want to be uh, the funny fat guy. I just wanted to be an actor amongst actors. And I remember getting that opportunity because I loved doing the kind of stuff I was doing on Drake and Josh, but it came a bit naturally to me, just being sort of like big and funny and sticky. And that was a huge part of me. But movies like Mean Creek and eventually The Wackness, that was um, Another side that I really wanted to explore, something more grounded and subtle, because those were the sort of movies I loved growing up. Yeah. And so we're looking at you right now. You're pretty fit. But back in the day, you were about 100 pounds or so heavier, right? You were a bigger guy. And you were often typecast, like, you know, as a big, funny guy. How did you feel that limited your potential in any way? Well, it just limited me as long as I wanted to stay that way. I think. Back then, bigger guys were limited to sort of two kinds of roles, which was the bully and the best friend. And Mean Creek, actually, that movie, I was playing a bully, but it was the first time I actually got to play this fully realized person because he was sort of this tragic character, this kid who so desperately wanted friends. That the only way in which he knew to sort of do that was to sort of antagonize kids just so they would notice him. And I remember when that movie came out and it was so well received and I thought, I can't wait another 10 years for another part like this to come around, like for a big guy to actually play a real person. So I lost the weight and there were certainly people who were like, right now you're part of like a pool of four or five guys, you know, vying for these roles. But if you lose weight and you get down to a normal weight, like you're going to be going against Jake Gyllenhaal for roles. Like, are you sure you want to do this? And obviously Gyllenhaal doesn't have to audition for movies. He's so damn handsome and talented. <laughs> but like they basically were saying the pool is much wider if you are at an average in quotes weight. But I knew that I wanted to be able to play those other roles and it was necessary for me 
in addition to all just the inner reasons I did it, that I wanted to be healthier and more comfortable in my own skin. Yeah. And so you had tried many, many diets before that. What did you do to actually get the weight off? Oh, it's just boring. I just ate better and worked out more. And I feel bad saying that because people always want some kind of hack. I know I did at that time, but I guess the only thing I, I can ever say to people who are on their own journey to to perhaps lose a bit of weight or get healthier is I was just sort of sick and tired of being sick and tired. I tried so many different ways and inevitably I had to feel completely over my way to try it someone else's. And so I always say to other people, if you're feeling hopeless or you're feeling like your way doesn't work anymore, I'm sorry you're going through that, but it's it's a great place to start. And pain can be a great motivator and you never learn anything on a good day. Yeah, I love that. Okay, so you lost all this weight, you accomplished this big goal, and you eventually turned to another vice, and that was drugs and alcohol. And in the book, you describe the first time you ever did drugs, and you say that it made you feel typical. What do you mean by that, that it made you feel typical? I think I'd spent my entire life up until that point, I was having this very specific experience. I was working in this adult career as a young kid since I was 12 years old. And there was a lot of responsibility. Maya Bialik, who I'm a big fan of, especially because she's done this beautiful job of transitioning from starting as a young actor and sort of growing up into this great adult performer. She said, as an actor, you're not really allowed to have a bad day. Now, there are plenty of examples of, of actors having bad days on set, but it's very important that you come and you show up ready to do what you have to do because there's a lot of money riding on it. And so I think that was my life up until I was 18, 19 years old. And I felt like I had to be sort of very measured with everything I did because I had so much riding on it, as opposed to what a lot of 18 and 19 year olds want to do, which is to be frivolous, a bit reckless, and basically stupid. And so when I was 18, 19, and I was experimenting in this, these ways, I felt very typical. And I had lost all this weight. And I felt like I, I was making up for lost times, I think. Mm. Yeah. And so what was the turning point? Can you share the story when you realized that like you have to get sober and that like enough was enough and you wanted to kind of change your life for the better in that way? So I lost 100 pounds and I thought I'd be all better. And then I wasn't. I was still the same head, just in a new body. So then I tried drugs and alcohol, and uh, that didn't work either. And so then I figured, well, success and prestige, maybe that'll work. So I uh, do this movie, as I talked about, The Wackness. And as I said, like my dream when I was 16 in that movie, Mean Creek, was to one day come to the Sundance Film Festival, which at this time, to me, was like better than the Oscars. And to be thin and to have like a movie I was proud of. And it came true. Like I was 21 and I remember the movie was screening there and like Quentin Tarantino's at the screening, like these heroes of mine. And I'm working with my hero, Sir Ben Kingsley. Like I'm an actor nerd. So for me, this was like Michael Jordan. Hmm. And that night the reviews start coming in and they're beautiful. And it was truly everything I'd ever hoped for. And I think I imagined that I'd wake up the next morning and the old Josh would be gone. That that voice inside my head that woke up a few minutes before I did every morning that told me all the reasons why I'd never be enough, that it would just be gone. And I woke up the next morning and that voice was still there. And it was like this terrible realization. 
that I said, oh no, I'm bottomless. It had been like a, a suspicion I'd had my whole life that no matter what I try to fill that hole in the soul with, it, it'll just never be enough. And I remember I, I flew home that day and everyone who was part of the movie was like, are you nuts? Like you're going home? This never happens. Like you never have a hit movie at a festival like this and you're, you're just going to leave? And I was like, yeah, I got to get out of here. And two weeks later, I got sober. And I think it was that realization and also taking some action that allowed me to do that. Wow, that's a really, really powerful story. And, and thank you so much for sharing that. So what you said reminded me of this thing called the arrival fallacy that people keep mentioning on my podcast. And basically what that means is like you achieve something and you're like waiting and waiting and you think everything, you're going to be happy finally when, like once this happens, I'm going to be happy. And then it happens and then you're like, oh, now I have to find the next achievement to like dangle in front of my face until I'm happy. So what has your whole career journey taught you about achieving happiness? It's a great question. I love the way you phrase it. Look, I think society tells us that. Like, you'll be all better if you can just afford this vacation, or you'll be all better if you can just buy a Beamer, or you'll be all, all better when. But the reality is, is that like, the gift is that you get to try, because there's so many people who are born into circumstance throughout this world who never even get the chance to try. And so the fact that you're like, maybe in a place where there's some financial insecurity or just life insecurity, but you get to put your best foot forward and work your butt off, like that's a gift. And I have to remember that. And I've, it's every corny slogan is true. You know, it's about the process, not the result and, and all these things. But for me, it's never been luckily about the billboard. It's never been about like going and doing some cool red carpet thing or all the cash and prizes. It's just, I really like the moments between action and cut. It's a puzzle for me. I remember I was in, I've had this great like year last year of, you know, I was working really consistently and I'm working on this really cool thing now and I'm so lucky. And, and so I, I've been in acting class the last couple months because I was like, don't get rusty, stay primed, stay ready. And I remember my acting, I did this scene and my acting teacher goes, well, you really didn't consider this or, yeah, you missed this. And I remember thinking in my head, I was like, I'm never going to be perfect at this thing. Like, it's like this puzzle that has a hold on me. Like, I just want to figure it out and I'll never fully figure it out, even if one day I do it superbly. And the verdict's still out on that. So I'm lucky to have a thing that really grabs me still. Yeah. And it's more like you're not necessarily basing your happiness on achieving that next big gig. You're basing your happiness on being the best actor that you can be and enjoying your craft. So I, I think that's really special. We all want to succeed. We're all bombarded with hustle, 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 and optimize your life, cram as much as you can into a 24-hour period. But like, what has helped me is finding the virtue in what I do. And it's easy to think as an actor, like, what's virtuous about what I do? It's self-serving just to like, so that I can get more followers and make more money. But the reality is, is that people live really hard lives and they come home and they turn on a show and they lose themselves in it for an hour or two hours or 20 minutes. And they can forget about their troubles or what's going on in their family or their boss who's a jerk or whomever, and just kind of feel like a relief that comes, that washes over them by watching what 
an actor or a producer or director is able to provide. So like there's virtue to that. So that's a reason to do what I do and to make it about something bigger than me. Because if it's just about me getting that next role, because I really want the announcement on Twitter, (laughs) then it's never going to be enough. Yeah. And I feel like people can relate to that no matter what profession they're in. Acting is a tough business. And I actually was really happy that in your memoir, you didn't try to like cover over the fact that it's really a hard business to be in. There's lots of ups and downs. So I'd love to understand like how you dealt with all the downs. I, uh, uh, therapy, (laughs) (laughs) support, good friends, being sober and never laying down. I've heard someone say, uh, if you're walking through the shit, just try not to sit down. There were so many moments where I wanted to quit. There were so many moments where I was just like looking at my life at 32, 33 years old in an audition room for, I don't know, maybe I've gone on a thousand auditions in my life. And for the 900th time being like, I thought I'd be further by now. I thought I wouldn't have to do this at a certain point. And here I am still singing for my supper. But I also am very like comfortable in that place. And Every time I've done something, I did a show with John Stamos where I played his son on this Fox show, which I wish I could time travel back to 13-year-old Josh and tell him that one day we'd be able to pass for John Stamos's son and that everything was going to work out and that maybe I should, should hold back on seconds. And that show was this great thing. And everyone was like, this is the moment. Like, And then that show was a great experience and then got very canceled or Last year, I did this show for Disney Plus, Turner and Hooch. So proud of it. One of the best experiences. And that show only went one season. So like, I'm comfortable in that place of like, go to an audition, get the pages, memorize it, go in there and realize that nobody's really thinking about me. I'm there to serve a purpose. Hopefully, I can help whatever puzzle this writer or director has set up for themselves where they're like, I really got to fit these roles. Like, Maybe I can be that guy. And if I'm not, well, maybe you're closer now to who you're supposed to pick because you realize someone like me is definitely not who you need. Yeah. And I've heard that said before about auditions. Like you're either going to help them by being the right guy for the role or help them get closer to realizing who they don't need. Either way, you're of service. And I have to remember that. We'll be right back after a quick break from our sponsors. Young and profiters, we are all making money. But is your money hustling for you? Meaning, are you investing? Putting your savings in the bank is just doing you a total disservice. You got to beat inflation. I've been investing heavily for years. I've got an E-Trade account. I've got a Robinhood account. And it used to be such a pain to manage all of my accounts. I'd hop from platform to platform. I'd always forget my Fidelity password. And then I have to reset my password. I knew that needed to change because I need to keep track of all my stuff. Everything got better once I started using Yahoo Finance, the sponsor of today's episode. You can securely link up all of your investment accounts in Yahoo Finance for one unified view of your wealth. They've got stock analyst ratings. They have independent research. I can customize charts and choose what metrics I want to display for all my stocks so I can make the best decisions. I can even dig into financial statements and balance sheets of the companies that I'm curious about. Whether you're a seasoned investor or looking for that extra guidance, Yahoo Finance gives you all the tools and data you need in one place. 
For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. Young and profiters, as you may know, I launched my LinkedIn Secrets Masterclass a little bit over a year ago. It was my first course. And so far, I've generated well over $500,000. And the best part is I didn't have to figure out how to set up my mastermind subscriptions, how to do abandoned cart targeting and all of that tech geeky stuff. I just left that all to Shopify. (coughs) Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. And if you're in that I need to sell more with less stage, Shopify Magic is your AI superpowered sidekick ready to whip up captivating content that converts. And it doesn't matter if you're selling digital products or vegan cosmetics. Shopify helps you sell anything, anywhere from their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system. Stop those online window shoppers in their tracks and turn them into loyal customers with the internet's best converting checkout. I'm talking 36% better on average compared to the other options out there. It's no wonder Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S., including huge global brands like Allbirds and Thrive Cosmetics. It took me a day to set up my Shopify store. I set up chat, took two minutes, and I was done. One month from thinking of the idea to implementation, a year later, I've made half a million dollars on the idea. That's what it takes in 2024, just a good idea and then utilizing a platform like Shopify that can help you make it a reality. There is no excuse these days. If you've got a good business idea and you think you'll be a good entrepreneur, you don't have to wait any longer. You don't have to be super techie and you never have to worry about figuring it out on your own. Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash profiting. That's all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash profiting now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash profiting. Young and profiters, Yap Media is growing so fast. I have 10 open roles just this month. In the past, it would take me so long to find hires. I have to go on all these different job sites. I have to create my own skills assessments. That's why I let Indeed do a lot of this heavy lifting for me. Indeed is the powerful hiring platform where I can attract, interview, and hire all in one place. Indeed has things like skills assessments, where when we have specific roles, we can find an assessment that matches that role and we can make sure they have the skills that we need. Then I can focus on culture fit. I can make sure they're scrappy enough and are obsessed with excellence and do all the things that we need to do for them to fit in at YAP. And Indeed streamlines hiring with powerful tools like Instant Match. An Instant Match basically matches you with candidates as soon as you put up a job post with people who are qualified right away. It's instant. And the best part is it gets better as you use it. So now when I use Indeed, especially when I'm hiring for similar roles, I get people right away where they know that I'm going to like the candidates because they can see what my preferences were in the past. It gets better as you use it. According to US Indeed data, the moment Indeed sponsors a job, over 80% of employers get candidates whose resumes are a perfect match for the position. It's like waving a magic wand that gets better as you use it. So I love using Indeed. We've found a lot of our A players on there. Join more than 3 million businesses worldwide who count on Indeed to hire their next superstar like we do at Yap Media. Start hiring now with a $75 sponsored job credit to upgrade your job post at indeed.com slash profiting. 
Offer is good for a limited time. Claim your $75 sponsored job credit at indeed.com slash profiting. Again, that's indeed.com slash profiting and support the show by saying you heard about it on Young and Profiting Podcast. Again, it's indeed.com slash profiting to get your $75 credit. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Something that was super interesting to me was that in your book, you say that you tell people that your life either existed BRD or ARD before the film Red Dawn and after the film Red Dawn. So how did you deal, since we're talking about rejection, how did you deal with the criticism of that film? And how did you sort of reinvent yourself after that? Well, Red Dawn was just sort of like the amalgamate or sort of the apex of all the things that I thought I needed in my life. But I basically was like 23 playing Chris Hemsworth's brother, which sounds crazy to me too. Don't worry. And I <laughs> I thought my whole life, I was like, this was what I wanted to be was the badass action star when in practice, I was so full of imposter syndrome that I actually let it turn me into a fraud. And I let go of everything that had always been working for me. And the result was this very stilted, uncomfortable, not great performance in the movie. And I was sort of, I took a lot of flack for it, but I think it's important to like flop and keep going and normalize flopping. I'm glad I got to do it at a time where I was young enough to where I could really learn from it and that it had to happen. And in the moment, I really thought like, this is it. When this movie comes out, I'll die. And it came out and the reviews came out and I, I just kept walking. And I think that's important to know. And I don't, on my podcast, Male Models, I've been lucky enough to interview like serial entrepreneurs, Gary Vaynerchuk and Damon John. And I remember I asked them, how long do you mourn a loss when a company doesn't quite live up to expectation or something falls through a deal or something? How long do you let it affect you? And they both like literally took a moment and said minutes. And I was like, really? Because I like to be wounded. <laughs> I like to take weeks to get over things. But I was like, yeah, that's how you do it, right? Like that's how you become as successful as them. You just keep pushing. Yeah. It's not about how many times you fall down. It's about how quick you get back up. And it must be tough being an actor because a lot of us who have more normal jobs, you know, you might do bad at work one day or even get fired, but it's not like plastered all over the internet. Nobody knows. So it must be even harder when you're an actor and you're getting all these outside people kind of giving you that negativity. So like we said before, when you ended Drake and Josh, social media wasn't really a thing back then. There was no like influencers yet, right? So you actually started your social media journey on Vine. I'd love to hear about what got you started on social media, how you kind of got your first big break and how you parlayed it into the millions of followers that you have today. I mean, the show ended in 2007. So it wasn't even like social media was, wasn't even remotely a thing. Like Facebook had been around for what, two years? But other than that, I mean, YouTube existed kind of. In 2013, I... I made my first Vine because I was a fan of the app. And for anyone who doesn't remember, it was like the original TikTok. And suddenly I started to get these followers. And I remember thinking after a couple months when I had about 100,000 followers, it was a real inflection point. Like I could really lean in or maybe stop doing it and people would have just forgotten. And I even had agents and managers calling me at that time saying to me, like, what are you doing? Like, we're trying to make you not just like the goofy guy from that kid's show. And you're like making silly videos in your car? Does this, does this hurt us? And I was really lucky to have an apostle during that time, my buddy, 
Rami, who worked in social media early on, and he said, listen, Josh, don't let anyone tell you they know what this is because I work in it and even I don't know. But I'll tell you that being able to go straight to your followers, affecting hundreds of thousands of people, finding out what they like, what they don't like, and everything in between, that's powerful. So do this. Do it every day. And that's what I did. I made a vine a day. Because until that point, I'd always been at the mercy of the gatekeepers. I'd always needed five people to sign off on me for me to get a role and then 18 months before it came out. But suddenly I was going straight to my audience. And with the click of the upload button, I could deliver content. So as long as I didn't have an ego about the way in which I was doing it, and as long as I didn't think, well, I really need a trailer and some fancy coffee if I'm going to be acting, and instead said, this is your job, so just do it, whether it's on your phone or for an IMAX camera. And the result was really great, and it grew to, to a good amount of success on Vine, Instagram, YouTube, and even TikTok, and it brought me here now. Yeah, and honestly, I love what you're saying. You're basically saying for a long time, and I always talk about this, for a long time, everything that you did required a gatekeeper to say like, yes, you're, you know, you're welcome, Josh. Like, we pick you, we choose you. Now you get to create your own life because you own it. You own these social media channels and you can communicate directly with your followers and monetize that. So I think that's super powerful. I think it's so necessary. And in 2013, The Rock didn't have 300 million followers and Kevin Hart and Jack Black weren't on YouTube. Like it wasn't as normal then. So it was a bit more of a leap. But I think the line has totally blurred between traditional and social media people. And I think now it's just about the content. And yeah, it afforded me security to get married, buy a house, have a kid that I don't know if acting would have ever given me. Yeah. I love this. Thank you so much, Josh. So I always ask two last questions at the end of the show, and then we do something fun at the end of the year. So the first one is, what is one actionable thing my young and profiters can do today to be more profiting tomorrow? Oh, wow. That's a great question. I would say just find someone today that you can do something nice for. Ideally, because we're talking about young and profiting, like someone in the business space, someone who can do you a favor down the road, figure out how to do a favor for them today. Hmm. That's a really good piece of advice. And what is your secret to profiting in life? Oh, profiting in life. Yeah. I mean, it, it sort of connected to that first thing. I mean, look, doing nice things for other people, becoming indispensable, helping people. I mean, it has an immediate payoff because of just the karmic sort of payout, which is immediate, right? You feel better. It's the best way to get out of self. But if you do these things, what you'll find is when people are in a position then to spread goodwill, to pay it forward, when they have an opportunity, you're going to be at top of mind. Like people go out and they become super selfish and they're like, no, I have to wrestle money and prestige and goodness from the world. I got to go out and get mine. And it's like, well, good luck, because no one's going to think of you first for anything. But if you've got a great track record of being there for people, of being a reliable, good source of good work, then the moment they have an opportunity to spread that goodwill, they're going to think of you first. That is such a great lesson. Thank you so much, Josh. I love this conversation. I think my audience is going to love it. Where can everybody go learn more about you and everything that you do? I guess just... Um, Follow me on Instagram, Shua Peck. <laughs> You're like, just Google my I name, don't know. <laughs> Josh Peck. <laughs> Thank you so much for having me. I really love chatting with you. You're awesome at this. 
Thank you so much, Josh. Great conversation.